Hello everyone, my name is Frederick Eichen. I write the Necker Substack, and today I have the pleasure of bringing you my conversation with Sebastian Malaby, the author of the book More Money Than God, my personal favorite history of the hedge fund industry, and therefore many of the active players in the public markets. It's also a personal favorite just because the amount of research that Sebastian did and the amount of the depth of access that he was able to get interviewing really legendary investors over a long period of time, just, just the footnotes to the book are an absolute pleasure to read. You realize just how many, how many stories and ideas he was able to unearth and how many insights he was able to piece together because he very methodically was able to pierce the many layers and, and have access not just to the individual investors, but also to the people who worked with them. And we're going to talk about this process in the conversation. Just one thing before we get started. Obviously, none of this is investment advice. Everything is either my personal opinion or Sebastian's. You shouldn't invest in anything based on what we're talking about. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sebastian Malaby. Thank you. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Frederick Gieschen, and today I'm joined by Sebastian Malaby, the author of several books, including More Money Than God, which is my personal favorite history of the hedge fund industry, and also one of the best researched investment books that, that I've had the pleasure of reading. Sebastian is also the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign, on Foreign Relations. And thank you so much for joining me today, Sebastian. Yeah, great to be with you, Frederick. Yeah, I, I like I said, I really love the book, and I would love to hear a little bit about sort of your background and how you found your way to the to the topic, how you approached it, kind of why finance, why why hedge funds, what was your journey uh, to get there? Yeah, so as you sort of alluded to, I'm a repeat offender when it comes to writing books. You know, I've done five now, and uh, each one is a bit different, and the way I get attracted and drawn into the subject, you know, varies. You know, for example, when I wrote The Man Who Knew, my biography of Alan Greenspan, the idea was I wanted to tell the story of the making of modern finance. And Greenspan had been at or near the center of finance from the 1960s to the 2008 crash. So from the period of the gold standard capital controls, you know, regulated interest rates, right through to the period when a freewheeling system was detonated by the dynamite of credit derivatives and opaque securitization. So so Greenspan was the ideal narrative vehicle to write about how this modern financial system was created. And, you know, I was thinking about this right after the 2008 crash in around 2009, 2010. And, and that's why I was attracted to that subject. With more money than God, it was a bit of a different story. Going in, I, I think I had two ideas that attracted me to the project. One, hedge funds, you know, obviously increasingly important, but not well understood by the general public. They tend to be close to outsiders and especially to outside writers. And so that was frankly just an irresistible temptation to an investigative journalist. And the second thing was that hedge funds are not merely not well understood, they're actively misunderstood. And when I began working on my book, the hedge fund that was maybe the most famous was long-term capital management, which of course blew up in 1998, and that scared the Federal Reserve and all the other supervisors. So hedge funds were seen as the scary fringe of finance. But I knew enough going in to understand that contrarian pools of capital might actually be stabilizing for finance. 
you know, contrarians obviously don't jump on bandwagons as much. They don't get stuck in crowded trades. So, of course, not all hedge funds are contrarian, but hedge funds, I'd say, have a higher probability of taking a strong independent view than other kinds of liquid market investors. So putting that all together, this was the other thing that drew me to writing More Money Than God, the opportunity to take a popular public perception and show why it was backwards. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And like you mentioned, right, it's an industry where that's fairly intransparent, opaque and sort of closed to, to, to outsiders or to journalists, unless it's with a sort of specific agenda in mind. And yet when I, I mean, one thing I love about the book is just going through the footnotes and seeing the, the depth of, of research you did and also the, the, the immense access that you had sitting down with some people who are very hard to, to get access to and, and to speak to. And I'm just, I was just wondering, how did you go about that? How did you gain people? people's trusts or navigate the different layers of PR or other sort of layers that, that people have around them to sort of protect themselves from, from prying eyes? How did you, how did you penetrate that and, and really get to sit down with people like George Soros or Julian Robertson and others? Well, the key was to do an unreasonable amount of preparation work, you know, before I approached any of these people. And then by the time I was ready to kind of approach Julian Robertson or Stan Druckenmiller or, you know, the people running Renaissance Technologies or DE Shaw or any of these other figures, they probably had heard that I was doing this work because I would by then have spoken to, you know, their their peers, people who work for their firm, people who used to work for their There was one particularly fine moment, actually, right at the end of my research, where I remember going off and getting a sandwich at lunch. Uh, and sitting by myself, you know, reading the newspaper or something, and my my phone went off. I I, I picked it up, and it was uh, Bruce Kovner from Caxton. And I'd been trying to speak to him, you know, for sort of three years, and he'd ignored <laughs> me. But then I had managed to get hold of somebody who had been his deputy at Caxton uh-huh. for a, a long, long time, and we'd had a four-hour dinner with the recording machine running. And I guess Bruce had heard about that. And so he figured, well, you know, if my deputy spent four hours with this guy, it's time for me to talk to him too, because I can't ignore him. He's going to write about me anyway. And so it's partly, you know, that you win people's respect by doing a ton of homework. It shows that you're serious uh, and you're not wasting people's time by asking Mm -hmm. the obvious questions. And it's also that, you know, people understand that you're in the ecosystem, you're talking to everybody and, you know, freezing you out in the end is not an option. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it's very interesting, right? You mentioned sort of the the unreasonable preparation and then also not asking the obvious questions. And I, I imagine sitting down with, with some of these people, you didn't have, you, you knew that there was going to be a very limited time frame where you'd have to ask, where, you, where you'd be able to ask questions. And I'm just curious, how do you think about using that what, what's the how do you decide what's important and what gets you to sort of the the deeper truth or the essence of a person if you know you only have an hour or two hours with somebody like Kovno or Soros how do you decide on like what to ask them and what's what's important to for you to to know or figure out yeah it's a great question Frederick I mean there's a there's a tricky balance I think when you go see people because there's always this dilemma when you go and see 
one of these incredibly important sources because what you really want to hear from them is something that nobody else could tell you. So you don't really want general reflections on finance, general reflections on the nature of investing in a climate of quantitative easing or, or, or what have you, because lots of people can talk about that and it's not, you know, of the real value add from from somebody who's going to be a protagonist in your book. What you really want to know from them is specifically what their thought process was around a particular important or interesting trade. How did they make the call? How did they develop conviction? How did they hold on to the position during the inevitable hiccups and adversity? So it's that reconstruction of the case study from which you're going to generalize about finance and what it's like to be an investor in the time of QE or whatever it is. You want the specifics, you don't want the general. But people typically want to discuss the general because it kind of feels big picture. It feels, yeah. you know, interesting, wise, high level. And they don't want to be dragged down into the particular because that involves difficult challenges of memory and so forth. Mm -hmm. So to try to prompt people to get into the specifics, I often show up with very detailed notes where I've, you know, reconstructed a specific timeline. And I'm able to say that, you know, I know from your investor letter that somebody gave me that in this month, you made a profit on dollar yen. I know that dollar yen, because I've looked at the charts, had a big move on the 15th and 16th of that month. Remember, that was a Thursday and Friday, I say, because I've, I've looked that up. And I say, so going into the end of that week, which would have been the second week of the month, I really try to kind of prompt them as much as possible. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I do all the research I can to set them up in a way that their memory will start kind of turning over. And then you just have to, you know, see if that triggers an interesting reconstruction of what happened on that crucial trade. Well, sometimes it doesn't. You know, people just draw a blank. They can't remember. They don't want to talk about it or whatever. And you can never tell going in in advance which of these will happen. Will it be terrific and you'll get precise memories? I remember one time going to see Stan Druckermiller and being stunned by the precision of his memory and the way that he could just walk you through uh, step by step, you know, what happened in his thinking on, let's say, the 1992 sterling trade. And then other times you go see people and they don't remember a thing. And in fact, the way you get to reconstruct the trade, if you can at all, is more by talking to somebody who worked for them, maybe the person who executed the trade for them, maybe the person who's sitting at the next desk and was watching them. And so I think this gets to a larger point, which is maybe just worth spending a minute on, which is, you know, people always ask me, you know, where do I look for information? And the answer is you've got to look everywhere. You know, where you get lucky will depend from project to project. So, you know, sometimes, like going back to the case of my Alan Greenspan biography, it turned out that the Nixon tapes had all sorts of interesting stuff about Greenspan conspiring with Nixon to undermine the independence of the Federal Reserve, which is an ironic thing, given that he then chaired it later. Or I remember one day driving to visit the guy who had operated the punch card system 
for the 1960s computer at Alan Greenspan's economic consulting firm. And I thought I would just get from him a description of the office culture. But I figured it was still worth driving out to see him in rural Virginia in his cabin. But when I got there, it turned out that he had in his basement this amazing collection of documents relating to Ayn Rand, including a series of lectures that Greenspan had given on Randian economics. So there, by this complete stroke of good fortune, I stumbled on a gold mine. So 300 pages of lecture notes from Greenspan's Randian phase, you know, including a memorable sentence in which Greenspan described the creation of the Federal Reserve as one of the historic disasters in U.S. history. That which is, is, you know, that's, a, that's incredible. An amazing quotation from the future Federal Reserve chairman, right? Right. So, so the point is, you can never tell where you're going to get the best information. I remember talking once to the author Ron Chernow, who of course I revere because of his book on the House of Morgan, as well as the famous biography of Alexander Hamilton. And Chernow told me that in this type of pioneering research, you're going to drill a lot of dry wells, but sometimes you will hit a gusher and all the effort will be worth it. And so, you know, coming to more money than God, where the method I used was mostly oral history, just tracking people down who had worked to all the funds that made his, I would just go see everyone I could get to see, not necessarily the chief investment officer, not necessarily the founder of the hedge fund, uh, but often the people lower down who had vivid memories of particular trades. And, and sometimes you hit that gusher, like when Julian Robertson handed over to me 20 years worth of limited partner letters, which he'd written every month, or, or, or when the grandson of the hedge fund pioneer, A.W. Jones, you know, came up with a prospectus in which he laid out the original hedge fund method. But you can never tell in advance where the stroke of luck is going to come. There's, there's, there's so much. So I'll just have to think about this for a second. But, but I love, first of all, sort of that you sort of, right, you have to go look everywhere and follow all these different hunches, never knowing where exactly you'll, you'll find the gusher. And it's so interesting that you're in your preparation, you drill down to sort of specific days in order, what you said, to, to trigger somebody's memory, because often, I guess, in 1987 or 1992, and in the, in the book, you do a great job at that. There are these moments where somebody is meeting, right? They're meeting overnight or they're meeting on a Sunday before the markets open and decisions are being made. And, and you kind of really are able to zoom into that moment in the story where there's a crucial uh, conversation and, and where kind of a, a crucial decision is, is made in, in the trade. And I guess I'm curious, coming coming at the, the book and the topic, what were were there any times when, when you had some something like a, a gusher that, that really surprised you or changed the way you perceived either a person or trade or a certain style of investing where you kind of hit one of those gushers and you came away just totally mind blown? I have to rethink this. Were, were there any surprises, surprises like that? I think with the general topic of George Soros, that was uh, a particular outfit where I was able to interview lots of different people who worked on the team. I went to see Soros himself, and actually, he said almost nothing. He makes this joke. In fact, I've just written a chapter for another book, uh, which will come out next year, which is kind of a biography of Soros in the form of essays by seven or eight different writers. And I've done the Soros, the financier chapter. And the joke that Soros always makes is, I can only remember the future. 
And unfortunately, that's true. When you ask him about the past, he's not much help. But I was able to interview a lot of people on the Soros team. So I think perhaps eight or nine people in total. There was Scott Besant, who was in the London office during 1992 in the sterling trade and went on to become a major macro manager in his own right. There was Rob Johnson, an economist who joined around the time of the sterling trade in 92 and went on to become the head of the Soros think tank, INET. There was Arminio Fraga, another economist, who was uh, key to the Soros trade in Thailand at the start of the Asian crisis, and later ran the Brazilian central bank. Rodney Jones, who was the key economist on the ground in East Asia, as well as, of course, uh, Stan Druckenmiller himself. And there, you know, part of the reason why this led to things I hadn't expected was just the triangulation, the kind of 360 degree of talking to everybody and and kind of getting multiple angles on a on a single story like the Thai trade or something. But it was specifically that Rodney Jones, who is maybe the least famous of the names I just reeled off, turned out to be the most phenomenally great interlocutor and help because he had kept all of the memos that he'd written from Asia, which he sent to the head office in New York during the Asian crisis, and he gave them all to me. And I was able to track in real time, you know, what he was telling the portfolio managers back in New York what to do. And, you know, this 360-degree research, I guess, yielded two things. One was a very fine-grained sense of how, you know, different people can contribute different things to one trade. So on the sterling trade in 1992, I think the learning is that there was a division of labor. Drucker Miller and his team spotted the trade. They understood that sterling might crack and devalue. So short sterling was a good bet. But it was Soros who sized it. It was he who had the, the conviction to go really, really big. And those are two different skills. One is about analysis and the other is about conviction. And then when it came to the BART trade, and this is sort of continuing on the same theme, the same learning, the BART trade in Thailand in 1997, and you'll remember perhaps that it was the devaluation of the Thai BART that kicked off the Asian financial crisis. The interesting thing is that the configuration at that point, five years after the sterling trade, the configuration inside the Soros fund was different. Mm-hmm. Soros himself at that point was a bit disengaged. And the trade was spotted by Drucker Miller and his team, and, and they sized it. They didn't really get a steer from the boss. And, you know, Arminio Fraga, Rodney Jones, Drucker Miller, these were the people in control. And without Soros's input, the upshot was that the Soros team sized the bet relatively modestly. And in fact, rather than build the short position on the Thai Bart as the collapse came closer, Druckenmiller actually reduced the size of the bet. It's completely, you know, counterintuitive. We think of, and you know, particularly outside people outside the hedge fund industry t- tend to think of, you know, hedge fund traders as these merciless sharks. But in fact, as the as the collapse came closer, the hedge fund in this case backed off. It's like the shark goes into reverse. And without Soros's you know, go for the jugular instinct, go for the jugular being the famous quote of the advice that he gave to Druckenmiller right ahead of the 1992 sterling trade. Without that push from Soros, the the Thailand trade played out completely differently to the United Kingdom. And so then I think there's also a second learning. And, you know, you asked me, so what did I learn? What, What I was surprised by? And beyond this idea that different individuals can contribute 
in a different way to a, a single trade. It's also the case that the multiple personalities can create chaos, right? And I think an underrated thing in the understanding of financial trading, and this comes up a bit in the new book I've written about venture capital, is that the culture within an investment company matters almost as much as the analysis that the company does of the market or of the trade. And this really played out in South Korea in, in 1998, uh, a bit later on in the Asian financial crisis. And, you know, this is one of my favorite stories from my research. I don't know if, if you feel like you, you've heard it before, Frederick, but maybe I should no, tell it anyway. No, talk about it. Okay. I, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you, you have to imagine Rodney Jones again, this Soros economist who's traveling from um, capital to capital during the Southeast Asian financial crisis. He's been in Thailand during the collapse there. He's been living in Hong Kong and he's seen, you know, attacks on the Hong Kong dollar peg. Then the Soros team went through the Indonesia crisis where, you know, they did well initially, but, but then things went sideways for them. And there was a revolution in Indonesia on the back of the financial crisis. So the whole thing was, you know, super intense. And then maybe about nine or 10 months into this incredible drama, Rodney goes to Seoul in South Korea. And, you know, he's making calls on various financial institutions in in Korea. And, you know, he's asking them, you know, how are things going? And they're saying, you know, it's all great. And he's looking on the walls of these offices. And, you know, you have these tombstone announcements, sort of, you know, mm -hmm. underwriting such right. and such. The deals. Yeah. They're with the deals, exactly. And he sees that these Korean financial institutions announcing in these framed plaques on their walls that they've done these financings for Thai real estate companies. Oh, no. And of course, he knows because he was there that all these real estate companies are bust. They're gone, yeah, finished. Yeah, yeah. So anybody who provided capital to them, you know, hasn't got it back. So they, he sort of starts to say to them, well, you say things are fine, but, you know, what about what's on your wall here? So then they look a bit, you know, embarrassed and shameful and bashful. And they say, yes, that's true. And so Rodney Jones says, well, all right, so you know, how come you're even still sitting here? I mean, you must have lost so much money on these deals that I would have thought it would just wipe your capital out. And essentially, he talked it out of them that the only reason these guys were still standing was that the South Korean uh, central bank provided dollars to them to make up for the dollars that they hadn't been repaid by the Thai real estate companies. And it followed from that, that of course, the South Korean central bank was depleting its dollar reserves in a way that were not was not announced in the public accounts of the central bank. The reserves were not reflecting this. Rodney Jones, the Soros guy in South Korea at that moment, understands that guess what? The South Korean reserves fictitious. The government is lying. And when you see that as a currency trader, you know that if you go short the currency, they're not going to have the reserves to defend it, and you're going to win. It'll be the sterling trade all over again. It'll be the Thai baht trade all over again. You can make another billion dollars. So Rodney King, you know, sends a memo. And Rodney Jones, I'm sorry, Rodney Jones says he sends a memo to to New York to the Soros headquarters and says, you know, lays out the logic and says, guys, here's the trade. You know, 
we can we can do this. And what he gets back from New York is radio silence, nothing. So he's sort of, you know, waiting, waiting, waiting for the answer. You can imagine you're the analyst in Korea. You see this trade. I don't know what right. your personal compensation is linked to that trade that you spot. But let's say you get, I don't know, even if it's just 5% of the winnings, if the winnings are a billion, that's kind of enough to retire on. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, he's thinking, why aren't they answering? So a day or two later, he sends a second memo. And of course, I've got all these memos because he gave me the whole set. Yeah, that's amazing. And he says, guys, here's the trade. You know, you, you should do this. And again, there's radio silence. And then the boss, George Soros, does show up in South Korea, but not to do the trade, rather to come and advise the South Korean government on how to deal with evil speculators that are putting pressure on the currency. You know, he arrives at the airport. There's a nice government delegation to meet him. There's a red carpet. He goes to the presidential mansion. He meets with the president. He has a press conference. You know, basically, on that week of the month, George Soros decides that he's not a hedge fund trader. He feels like being a global statesman. He wants to be a right. philanthropist. He wants to be the good guy. And so you see the sort of many, many sides of George Soros, the many faces of George Soros, but you also see how chaos and sort of weird reporting lines within Soros fund management cause them to miss this enormous trade and, and cost them unbelievable amounts of money. No, that's, that's an incredible. First of all, that you had all the memos so you could reconstruct that trade, but also, yes, that shift from the hedge fund manager to the philanthropist and statesman and then putting on these different hats at different times that, yeah, I can only imagine the frustration of the uh, Rodney's frustration having having spotted that trade and in a little bit like you, right? He only found it because he was on the ground doing all this research and sort of following all these different threads and, and paying attention. But I want to come back to something that you said, which is that the personalities and the culture are sort of almost as important or as important as the analysis. And I'm kind of curious on, on two things. We talked about sort of the, the Soros team. In your book, I think you're doing a terrific job of sort of um, starting at the beginning, right, with uh, with Alfred Winslow Jones and then th having the arc all the way to today. And you have these different, what you call sort of intellectual villages, right, the, the stock pickers, the, the commodities and macro guys, and later sort of the event-driven and, and the uh, the quant guys. And I'm, I'm curious how you'd contrast sort of the, the different cultures and, and institutions and, and sort of the ones that you felt, were there any that maybe Commodities Corp or, or Soros or, or Tiger that had sort of a lasting legacy in the industry in terms of culture? How, how did you how did you think about the different cultures that you encountered, I guess, is my, uh, my question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. And, and there are really huge contrasts. I mean, someone like George Soros is, you know, liable to change his mind about things from one day to the next, sometimes one minute to the next. You know, he was famous for sitting in a meeting with some visitor to his office and then, you know, the visitor says something and he leaps out of his chair, reverses his position on some big trade, you know, rushes over to yell at his trader to to flip it 180 degrees. And when you're working for a boss like that, it's quite difficult to know what he wants. And so I think that sort of breeds dysfunction. And although he, in the end, hired 
a deputy who was so brilliant that he essentially handed the reins to him. That was Stan Druckenmiller. He went through a bunch of other people fairly quickly, and it just was very difficult to work for him. And that's, I'd say, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you get you know value investors who, by their nature, are fairly settled in where they think they see value, and they're kind of willing to make a bet and stick with it because it's not a a sort of macro trade kind of where other people are positioned kind of bet. It's like a fundamental value view. And so there, I think Julian Robertson is the best example I came across. And of course, I think he has passed that DNA onto all these tiger cubs that have done incredibly well in their own right. I, I provide some statistical analysis at the end of my book in the appendix about how tiger cubs have outperformed their peers, apparently because of the training they receive from Julian Robertson. That and and I think the key thing with Robertson is that you know there are some hedge funds that do incredibly well in markets because they have some new method or theory about where the alpha is, and then other times there is no new theory, but there's just incredibly good execution. And I'd say with Jordan Robertson, he didn't have any insight. I mean, you know, he basically just picked stocks long and short and looked for value. That's not a new approach, but he was really, really good at it. And he was not only good at it himself, he was good at creating a team and motivating the team that worked for him and, and having people who really go the extra mile in researching stocks before they make a bet. And when you when you go the extra mile, you develop more conviction. And when you have more conviction, you can size the position bigger and you can hold it on, hold on to it for longer. So I always remember the story about the Tiger analyst who recommended a short on a South Korean car maker. And it was based on a tip about a design flaw in the engine. And to make sure that was really true, the analyst bought a couple of these cars and got a mechanic to check them out. Uh, so that's what you call mm -hmm. real fundamental research. Right. That's that's really interesting, and and I think Julian Robertson and Tiger, there's there's sort of a few things going on, and right, and you made the point that yes, it was sort of plain old stock picking in a way. So what made him special, and yet there is, I think there's sometimes this tension, and you've talked about it with the team too, right? Do we do you focus on the the portfolio manager, right, the the investor who stands out, or do you focus on the, the team and the network around him. And it seems to me that Robertson was really good at maybe recruiting the right people, or like you said, sort of motivating them, getting them to do go the extra mile. Also, maybe networking, right? He had these bull bear debates and he had access to executives. And I'm just wondering, is that... Is it is it all of the above? Is it... If you had to... <laughs> I guess I'm I'm still sort of trying to figure out like what is the the special sauce that endured because you also made the point in the book that some of the things that they were able to to dig up in the pre-internet era, right? Some of that the the playing field for information has been is more level now or more competitive now, and yet the Tiger Cubs continue to do well even in this sort of more competitive or you know where the information asymmetry is maybe a little less pronounced they still continue to do well so something about what he taught them or how he you know something about what they learned or how they were selected still works yeah in some ways i mean it's a great reassurance to human traders that you know even when so much information is available online 
And in some sense, it feels like the playing field is level. Or if it's not level, the edge must lie with data analytics and the ability to to process the enormous amount of data that we can now access. There is still room in the system for human traders, human stock pickers to generate alpha. Because in the end, we live in a world which involves human beings who manage companies and they have strengths and failures and they have charisma or they have a lack of charisma. And, you know, doing the shoe leather work of actually going to visit companies and making a judgment about the quality of the leaders of those companies, all of that stuff still matters. And I think that's the sort of the DNA of Tiger as far as I understand it today is that you've got you've got people who don't mind hustling, who don't mind getting on a plane flying to another country, meeting the manager and and building a, a very personal network. And that continues to generate good returns. That's yeah, that's that's really interesting because one thing that st- stands out to me from your book is you have these sort of eras or kind of different market regimes and you find a certain type of trade or a certain type of firm does really well in a in a sort of decade or, or two. And then eventually things change and maybe the strategy is no longer a good fit and people peter out or, or blow up in sort of, a, you know, in the dot-com bubble or in other events. And I'm just curious, it seems that it's rare that somebody is able to truly evolve and, and maybe adapt their style if, if the world or the market regime really changes. It seems like that maybe the tiger model is a little bit uh, more adaptable, the sort of networking since they've done well, but even Julian Robertson's end, maybe you can speak to to that, right, where he sort of became too big and and kind of started doing things that were no longer sort of the core of his strategy from, from the beginning. I, I mean, I don't know if you have an opinion on the sort of getting out over your skis or sort of ending up in a market that's no longer a fit for your strategy and whether one can truly evolve and change or whether that just means it's the end of, of somebody's sort of uh, glory days and career. You know, I think there is a lesson about how Jude and Robertson came unstuck. I mean, at the end of the 90s, he had two big problems. You know, one was that the tech bubble was just going to kill any value investor. Anybody who looked for fundamental value was going to miss the logic of technology stocks going through the roof. And indeed, there wasn't a logic and they ultimately crashed, but they didn't crash fast enough to save Judah Robertson's Tiger Fund. He closed it right as the NASDAQ corrected in, in the year 2000. So that's just a classic case of the market can be irrational for longer than you can hold on to the position. So I think there's not much lesson to learn from that other than it was just incredibly bad luck. But the other thing that went wrong for Julian Robertson in the late 90s was that he had diversified out of stocks and into some macro. He was doing currency trade and he had a dollar yen bet that went extremely wrong. And uh, that was, I think, the beginning of his losses and weakened him to the point where when he also got hit by the Nasdaq bubble, it was sort of a double whammy that he sustained. He might have gotten through the Nasdaq problem if he hadn't been hit by the yen trade and the losses that came from that. And the point there is that when somebody has an edge in one area, like equity stock picking, and then they go into some other area, it it often doesn't work. And it's not so much that People can't adapt over time because I'll come to that in a minute, but I think they actually can. It's more that when you 
diversify from one type of hedge fund strategy into another one. That's the risk. It's the mission creep thing. And I think it happens, you know, often when funds get a lot bigger, they don't have, you know, if they're trying to do deploy a much larger sum of capital, they feel like they need new strategies. So the founder of the fund has a team to work for him that does the macro for him. And that's where the fundamental advantage of a hedge fund starts to unravel. And it's just worth reminding ourselves that, you know, what is that advantage? The advantage of hedge fund is that it's a structure whereby the person who's making the investment decisions, you know, has real skin in the game and really good incentives. And, you know, they've got their own capital in the fund. They've got their own reputation at stake in the survival of the fund. If they make a big mistake, they're really personally going to pay for it. And at the same time, if they get it right, they're going to get 20% of the carry and they'll be properly rewarded. And it's that, you know, supercharging of incentives that I think really focuses the mind and makes people perform at their best. Whereas if you are running an old prop desk at a bank, you know, it's sort of heads I win, tail you lose. You know, if if the prop trade makes a great call and, you know, the trader will get a big bonus if if the trade goes wrong then it's the bank's capital that is lost. And of course, when Julian Robertson hired macro people to work for him, those people were, you know, they didn't have their name on the door and nor did they have their reputation at stake and it wasn't really their money in the fund. And yet they would get a big bonus if it went right. And so I think some of that trader's option stuff started to come into play with the macro team. And, and you see that even more where you have multi-strategy hedge funds which is sort of a, a personal you know, pet peeve of mine. I just think it's, a, it's kind of a corruption of the original idea of hedge funds where you've got lots of different profit centers and it's supposed to be great because it's diversified, it's multi-strategy. That's a mistake. Let the LP, whether it's an endowment fund or a family office or what, let them do the diversification. But at the GP level, you should focus on what you understand and what you know and what you're going to be personally involved in. And if you have the boss of a hedge fund delegating to sort of six different risk centers who are doing a multi-strategy approach, it's impossible for the head of the hedge fund to understand the details of every single strategy. And that's where you get the amaranth problem. The amaranth problem being, of course, the, the reference to the hedge fund that blew up in the 2000s because one desk was doing crazy energy trades that the top management didn't understand. So, so that's where you're getting, right? So like you said, you, you're losing that original advantage of the incentives being very sharp yeah. and, and focused for that person. Now you have all these different different teams with a different kind of asymmetry of I'm going to get paid very well. And my downside is um, it's not my firm. It's not my name on the door. That's yeah. interesting. And I, yeah. I, I, I don't mean to disparage you know, individuals. I mean, of course, most individuals are trying to do the right thing. They want to invest you know, as well as they can, whether it's their name on the door or it isn't their name on the door. You know, People are motivated not just by profit, but by just trying to do well. I understand that about human nature, but I also think that, you know, financial incentives matter. And, you know, at the margin, you're going to have less good performance when you have that trader's option sort of incentive creep into the organization. M maybe I should come back to your other question, though, 
you know, about whether people can adapt. Would mm -hmm. that be a good idea? Because I think that, you know, w when people stick with what they know, I think they they can adapt. And indeed, sometimes the comparative advantage of a hedge fund manager is precisely the ability to adapt. I mean, George Soros used to say, I don't play the game. I look for changes in the rules of the game. And so it's that, it's, it's the kind of high level intelligence to see how the world is changing and therefore what the opportunity set is doing and, and sort of moving with that as the world shifts. And I think, you know, Soros began in, you know, sort of cross-border arbitrage of equities before capital controls were lifted. And that was one particular type of skill. Then capital controls were removed. And so all of a sudden, you know, you, you know, his, his special source was stolen by the government, which, you know, had taken away the distortions in prices across geographies that had been his bread and butter. But in removing capital controls, they created currency markets. And so then he became a currency trader. So he just adapted and moved with the times. And I think, you know, that's what defines the, the hedge fund traders who have longevity. And I think some of them do have a lot of longevity. You know, I mean, Miller stayed in the game for a long, long, long time. There are, you know, lots of chief investment officers who have run funds through thick and thin and round and flat. And, you know, there have been periods where, you know, one type of strategy was generating the rewards and they've been able to adapt without going beyond their competence. They've been able to adapt into a new approach. And so I think, I think it's wrong to argue that that adaptation never works. Yeah, I think this this question of longevity and and adaption it, it's just it's so interesting because I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just not clear to me, you know, whether one can predict whether someone will be able to do that, right? And and I think there's there's a quote that you had you said about Julian Robertson, for example, the value investing mindset almost disqualified Robertson from mastering macro. And you talked about the dollar yen bet and the sort of if I'm a value investor, right, I have my conviction on a certain position and I sort of implicitly I'm saying well, the market is wrong about this and I'm seeing something that people are misunderstanding and so maybe more inclined to when the position goes against me to hold on because I my ego is invested I think I'm right versus somebody who's coming from the macro fund to me um, take a very different approach to, to risk management and so I think this this question I, I wonder if you could speak to that kind of the importance of personality and matching someone's personality to the right strategy and and when that you know when there's a mismatch maybe i'm just curious like how how important do you, did you think someone's personality was and does that have something to do also with the this question of longevity maybe or, or being able to to adapt yeah i think not getting your ego tied up in trade is extremely important and i think some element of humility in a weird way is essential. You need to be cognizant that you could be wrong and that when you're in a levered position, it's better to survive and, you know, cut your losses. 
than to risk going out of business and then you live to fight another day. And that's very much true of all the macro people that I studied. But it's not true of, of equity positions because they're much less levered and you don't expect to make all the money in some dramatic moment like you do with a currency trend. So I think it's certainly a different style. It's probably a different personality. I think a, a big thing that people don't necessarily understand when they're outside the hedge fund world is that it's not just about being right in trading. It's about sort of the sizing of the trade and the fact that you can be wrong more often than you're right. But if you size those bets when you're right bigger, you will still make money. And that, I think, is sort of like the key insight about someone like Paul Tudor Jones, who we haven't discussed yet. You know, he would say, I'm, I'm wrong more often than I'm right. And, you know, what he meant was that, you know, he would, he would have a view that, let's say, you know, in the late 80s, coming into 1990, the Japanese stock market was way overvalued. He would have a further view that Japanese institutions were positioned in such a way that, you know, if the market started to fall, it would fall hard because insurance companies would cover their bets and, and whatever else. So he would, have a, he would have a view on the macro, he would have a view on the institutional positioning of others. And he would see that this is something that if it moved, would really move a lot. So then he would take a short position on the Japanese market when he thought he saw a trigger for a, a reversal. But if he was wrong, he would put a stop in you know, ahead of time so that he would just be kicked out of the trade with a minimal loss and it wouldn't hurt. And he did that a few times. And then, you know, I don't know, on the fourth time or something, it would be right. And the point is that when he was right, because he had foreseen that once it moved, it would really move a lot. Instead of, you know, the thing moving half a percent before he stopped out, it then moves, you know, 25%. And so the wins from that time that he's right vastly overcompensate for the multiple times when he's wrong. And that's, that's the key. And I don't think that, you know, you need to think about that nearly so much when you're doing long, short equity, but you do need to think about it when you're doing sort of levered futures trading or levered macro. And, and so that is just a different approach. And it, it sort of, you know, things move very fast in, in macro. So, I mean, you know, going to interview uh, Paul Tudor Jones for me was uh, quite an experience because he was so hard to pin down. He was always sort okay. of, you know, hitting the button on a speakerphone and yelling an instruction to a trader. Really? Out of the, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary about him where they filmed him at his at his desk and. Yeah, hundred percent. I saw that. I mean, I was so desperate to see that. I paid him a ridiculous amount on eBay to get the tape. Yeah, no, I saw that, and and that is. I mean, even though I then interviewed him, probably, you know. 20 years or something after the documentary was filmed, because mm -hmm. that was a 1987 documentary, as I recall. You know, with 20 years extra maturity, he had calmed down a little bit, but not that much. And he was still a, a fairly, you know, tightly wound character. Whereas, you know, I've interviewed lots of other people who are sort of the philosopher king. And they're happy to, you know, turn off all the alerts and notifications and talk seriously for an hour because their portfolio isn't going to change in an hour. It's just a completely different personality. That's so interesting. And 
and especially about Paul Tudor Jones, and, and you mentioned this in, in the book even, right? I mean, there's, there's this quote that you used. I don't know who it's from, but genius does not always understand itself. And there are these moments when, like, Paul Tudor Jones might be famous for um, being short the 1987 crash. But then if you go back and you look at the the factors that moved him to that thinking, right, like this, this overlay chart with 1929, you find out that, well, they kind of fudged around and, like, moved that a little bit so, so it actually fits. So it wasn't like the most scientific approach. And so I'm, I'm just curious how you think about someone like that, where, where there's maybe a disconnect between what they intuitively do or how they, you know, and, 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 the, and the, their ability to kind of articulate what it is that they do and maybe replicate it or, or teach it, right? How, how much can you, how much did you sitting down with him sort of learn from him or understand from him if, if there, if a lot of it is sort of happening under the surface and very quickly and maybe not always, you know, sort of consciously like laid out on, on paper? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the quote that you mentioned about genius doesn't understand itself comes from Vic Braden, a sort of famous tennis coach. And it's really about how in the observation of tennis players, if you ask them, you know, why is your topspin forehand so beautiful? They don't know. They can't explain. They give information which isn't meaningful or they give one story and then they contradict it two minutes later. They just don't know. And that struck me as an analogy for trading. And you're right that Paul Tudor Jones was the extreme example of this. He hired a quant in the 1990s to sit next to him as he did his trades Mm -hmm. and to ask him all the time, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And the theory was that the quant would create a program to trade on the Paul Tudor Jones method. And then, you know, you could make much more money because the system would be trading systematically. And if Paul Tudor Jones was doing off something else, it wouldn't matter. But the program never worked. And, you know, I, I know this because I, I spoke with the programmer who is in his own right a very distinguished both economist and builder of systematic trading systems who's gone on to be a a, a pretty prominent public figure in finance. So he's, it's not his fault. I mean, he's, you know, his subsequent record shows how good he is. But it just wasn't possible to translate Jones's method into a trading system because Jones himself was incapable of telling the quant why he was doing what, when. And so this, of course, raises a question. If Paul Tudor Jones cannot say how he makes money, maybe the answer is he just gets lucky. But the thing is that Jones was so successful for so long that the odds of this being just luck are really vanishingly small. I mean, if you flip a coin and get heads one time, or even two times, of course, that could be lucky. But when you do it 10 times in a row, 10 years in a row, the odds of that being luck is like, you know, 0.5 to the power of 10. And I think that's just under one chance in a thousand, if you do the math. So at a certain point, it becomes absurd to say, well, Paul Tudor Jones was just lucky. So it's not luck, but it's not something he can't ex- he, that he can explain. And that's the fascination of, mm-hmm. you know, writing my book. The goal of the book is to find the real answer to why he succeeded. And so I go in there, I talk to him, I, I look through everything he ever said to anybody. I find that documentary that you referred to, and I you know, carefully study everything he says in there. And I, I discount the theory, this is all luck, but I also discount some of the stories um, that he tells, because they're, like you say, with the 
data fitting around the 1987 crash. That was clearly nonsense. And so I, I, that's the kind of Vic Braden story. Some of what the tennis player says about the forehand is nonsense. But then I arrive at how I think he really makes money. And I kind of alluded to it before about the yen trade, but I mean, the, the, the Japanese stock market trade. But, but I think that, you know, you can, you know, there's maybe another illustration, which is also quite nice, which has to do with the Lehman Brothers trade in 2008. And I remember going to see Paul probably in 2009 when this trade around the Lehman Brothers collapse was kind of fresh in his mind. And he shared with me some of the emails that he wrote to his team in the middle of the night when he was going through that intense period of, of the unraveling of the financial system. And the way he described it to me was, look, you know, Lehman Brothers, well, he first of all, he said to me that he absolutely knew for sure that the collapse of Lehman Brothers were going to be absolutely, totally, and he's, you know, he's a very emphatic guy. So he said, absolutely, totally, ultimately, completely for certain, or something like that, you know, the end of the Western financial system as we know it. So I listened to this and say, well, what do you mean? I mean, explain that. I mean, how do you know that? And so he looks at me like I'm being a bit impertinent and, and says, um, well, I just knew. And I say, come on, the point here is to try to understand how you knew, why you knew, what did you know? And then eventually, by pushing back, I, I get to this thing where basically what he's saying is that what he knows is that when Lehman Brothers on Sunday night, that crucial Sunday night, discovers that it's not going to be rescued by the government, and so it's, it's going to declare uh, bankruptcy. It's not like, you know, Lehman is going to, you know, that Lehman debt or, or, or that the, the counterparties are going to be stronger the next day. They can't be stronger, right? So the worst, I mean, the, the most optimistic outlook would be that the market absorbs the news of the Lehman Brothers collapse and kind of holds steady. And that's what the official sector believed. That's what Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, and the folks of the Fed were hoping. They kind of said to themselves, well, look, this Lehman Brothers collapse has been a rumor in the markets for quite some time. People know that it might happen. People know that we've been you know, circling the wagons with Lehman Brothers. And so let's say it's a 50-50 here, 50% chance that you know, the markets are okay when Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt, and a 50% chance that they take a dive. And so that's okay. We'll take that bet because, you know, if you're Hank Paulson and you're a Republican and you've already been criticized after the bailouts of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for being like the finance minister of China, which was the rap on him from kind of conservative Republicans after the bailout happened of the mortgage lenders, you know, you don't want to have that too much. So you say, okay, I'll take a 50-50 shot that if I let Lehman Brothers go, it won't be disastrous. But if if you see that same 50-50 in the way that a trader does, like Paul Tudor Jones does, then you realize that the Hank Paulson view was crazy. And it's crazy because in a world where there's a 50% shot that it will be a flat outcome for Wall Street, but then a 50% shot that it will tank, every sensible macro trader with a Paul Tudor Jones mindset will be massively short. Because you can't mm -hmm. lose. It's an asymmetric bet. Yeah. And it's that asymmetry. If you perceive the asymmetry, then in a way, it's no longer 50-50. It's like 100% it's going down. 
Yeah. Um, it, it, it's like reflexive because everybody all, all of a sudden is like does that trade and then drives the price in that direction, right? Exactly. So those that understand the asymmetry will be leading that. And then the others will be following once they see things starting to collapse. And, you know, Hank Paulson was at Goldman Sachs, but he was an M&A banker. He was not a trader. And that's why I think he missed this. And, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, who gets asymmetry, there was no way he was going to miss it. And so I think that's, that's like a sort of insight into his reaction function that the official sector ought to internalize. And that kind of really tells you why this man, you know, for a long time was so successful. That's interesting. So you saw the asymmetry, but but again, it's also comes back to one of those moments, uh, like you alluded to at the very beginning, right? It's this sort of Sunday night. It's, are you fast enough to lead, right? Do you see it fast enough? Are you kind of constantly, I mean, I, I just see this picture of Paul Tudor Jones from the documentary. He's like, he's at his desk, he's got his lucky shoes on, and he's just constantly... He, not only does it see it at some point, but he sees it like as one of the first and then immediately executes on it. That's- I, th- I think that, you know, there's one thread in what you said earlier, which I think is really smart and worth kind of picking up, which is that, you know, sometimes causation in human actions works in a weird way. So, you know, if I go for a walk outside for 20 minutes and then I have an idea and it unblocks the paragraph that I've been writing and then all of a sudden I can write the next two pages easily mm. you know is it because walking causes that <laughs> or is it just somehow like an indirect thing where walking puts me in a frame of mind where I then for some other reason have an idea and I think that's kind of relevant to the Paul Tudor Jones method that he, he would talk about and I remember him saying this to me when I went to see him you know sort of sitting in the evening when the markets were closed and kind of thinking through what might happen the next day, thinking about the different scenarios that could arise, thinking what he would do if, if, if option A was to transpire, he would do, op, you know, he would do trades one and two. If option B happens, he would do something else. And he kind of thinks all these things through in advance. And that quiet sort of reflection when the markets are closed, makes him faster when the markets are open because he's kind of been there in his head. And uh, I think that's, I think that's worth pondering. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Cause I read, right. You wrote about these sort of market scripts that he sort of mentally plays through. And, and I was always thinking like, that's interesting. I'm not sure you could necessarily replicate. It seemed like something that was very personal. And I also thought, well, there's going to be so much going on in the market. You know, is it really realistic that he kind of thinks to all these branches of the decision tree? But the idea that because he thinks it through in detail, you know, slowly in a, you know, outside of market hours, that he can just then be faster in terms of recognizing things and, and, and acting on them and already understand. I mean, yeah, it's, it's almost like, yeah, it's like a pre, pre-game just, just strategy session internally. I, I want to kind of take a step back, though, because it's been about a decade since you've written the book, right? And obviously, there was the financial crisis, hedge funds. It was almost sort of the, I don't know, so the, not the, the peak, but hedge funds were sort of, sort of very on vogue. And, and, you know, it's been a very different decade since. So I'm just curious what your perspective is on the book and the industry sort of a year, a, a decade later, and how you would approach this 
you know, this cast of characters in this industry from, from today's vantage point? Sure. I mean, on the book and how I think about it now, I guess I, I feel like I made two big claims in the book. You know, one was that hedge funds were good for the financial system. They were not the wild fringe of finance that was going to cause havoc. They were the stabilizing contrarians. And I feel like that's pretty much been vindicated. It's not as though there has been a major, you know, systemically costly hedge fund blow up in the last dozen years. And, you know, the crises have come from the old financial institutions, the sort of, you know, European debt crisis, the exposure of European banks to sovereign debt, you know, Chinese real estate now, whatever. It's not hedge funds that are getting the world into trouble. So I feel vindicated on that. The other claim I made was that, you know, hedge funds would generate alpha for the LPs. And that's the one which doesn't look so great because, as we all know, hedge fund alpha has been down in the last 10 years. And so I'm often asked, you know, why is that? You know, when I wrote the book and I finished it off around, you know, 2009, I was reporting the best data that there was, which came from Roger Ibbotson at Yale, who stripped out the various biases in the in the best data set that you could get your hands on, survivorship bias, you know, reporting bias and all that stuff, and then kind of calculated the alpha net of fees, really looking at what LPs get. And it was it was strongly positive, you know, 3% a year, I think, was what he found over a period of 15 years or so. And so that was a very, very strong result. And, you know, there have been some anti-hedge fund books that came out a year or two after mine that there was there was one called something like the hedge fund illusion or, or something. And, you know, that was sort of, you know, doubly nonsensical, that that argument, because A, there is alpha or there was alpha at the time, and B, you don't need that much alpha in a diversified endowment fund for it to be super worth having. I mean, uncorrelated return is, you know, adding something to your Sharpe ratio and you really want that. And, and I think people miss that. When you do a straight comparison of what do hedge funds return against what does the S&P 500 index return or whatever other index you want to choose, that's the wrong comparison to make. You should be thinking about hedge funds. Do they add value to a diversified endowment type portfolio? And the answer at the time I published my book was unequivocally yes. It's been less strongly, yes. I don't think it's been no since then. I don't think alpha has been negative as far as I've seen the data, but it hasn't been as strong. And I think that's because the simplest way of saying it is that, you know, quantitative easing compresses risk spreads. And so if your profession is to assess financial risk and to price it, you just don't get paid as much for assessing risk accurately when risk spreads in general have been compressed by the central bank. So hedge funds can go about their business and price risk and sort of try to be independently minded as they form those convictions and they put on their trades. And they can still be right, but they just won't get the same profits as they used to because all risk spreads are down thanks to quantitative easing. And so I think, you know, the best prediction is that if we're going into a world of higher inflation now, and therefore, interest rates start to rise from their extremely low level. Risk spreads should start to widen again, and hedge funds may again be better at generating alpha. And I think that's very linked to 
what we see in the macro picture with with central bank policy. But to come to the other part of your question, if I were to write today a book about hedge funds, I guess I would have to grapple much more thoroughly with the impact of quantitative trading. In my book, I wrote about D.E. Shaw. I wrote about Renaissance Technologies. And in fact, I got a lot of calls when Bob Mercer of Renaissance Technologies emerged as a major player in the Donald Donald Trump firmament, because I, I think I was one of the only writers to have actually gone to meet him. But if I were to write a hedge fund book today, the whole universe of quant funds has grown enormously. It still remains true today that there are more non-quants than quants, but the quant funds are much larger. A higher share of the largest hedge funds are quant hedge funds. And the quant hedge fund sector is different, right? It's got higher barriers to entry because of all the investment you need to make in the computing power and indeed the computer science brain power. And because of those high barriers to entry, you tend to get these concentrated pools of excellence in a, in a few big quant shops. And the survival rates for quants are higher than for non-quants. So this all sort of changes the game. It's less of a kind of Darwinian, competitive, adaptive ecosystem, which is what I saw in the discretionary trading world. I think in the world of uh, quants, you get enterprise value, you get the ability to transfer the enterprise from one group of founders to the next generation who can continue to manage it and build it. And so it presents a different set of questions in its own right. And it also presents this question, which is sort of interesting about what's going to be the balance in the future of quants versus non-quants. And as I've alluded to, my own view is that quants will maybe continue to grow, but non-quants, human traders, are going to remain very important. And I'd say that the insight here is that I'd say for the last 25 years or so, from let's say the early 90s, when Renaissance technologies got going, you know, until about, you know, let's say just recently, the quants were growing because they were displacing discretionary traders who were engaged in market making. So they were smoothing out short-term inefficiencies resulting from the market's failure to absorb new inf information quickly or market inefficiencies because of what happens when large participants, which are not trading on information, but are just trading on liquidity needs, you know, they move prices because of the limits to liquidity. So I think, you know, the, the quants have kind of taken that over. And we shouldn't be surprised that they've done that because those sorts of market making functions involve, you know, repetitive signals and the quants are brilliant at. On the other hand, human traders are good at interpreting the arrival of new paradigms, i.e. what does it mean for markets when you have a pandemic? Or what does it mean for markets when you have a pandemic and then an unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus. And so this is sort of like when you have unknown territory and the past patterns in markets won't necessarily repeat themselves. You need people who look into the future. You don't need machines to look into the data from the past. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in markets that's about the future and not about the past. It's where, you know, there's a war, there's a Taiwan crisis, there's, you know, a geopolitical thing. There's like a whole different scenario that presents itself. You know, crazy political leader gets elected somewhere, <laughs> right? Some central bank in innovates uh, a new kind of liquidity tool. Whatever it is, there are things that the algorithms won't capture 
And so I would remain bullish on on human traders. But I I think that tension between the the man and the machine or the person and the machine mm-hmm. is something that a, a, a modern book about hedge funds would have to grapple with more than I did. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's that's a fantastic note to to end on, I think, and that tension between the human trader and, and the machine and kind of that that tension also between data and the history and that unknown territory in the future. I love that. Sebastian, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate that you took the time to to talk about it. And I really look forward to to your new book, which we can't talk about, but when it comes out, I re- I do really look forward to to that as well. You can at least give the the title, Frederick, or or I will if you don't. That 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 much is allowed. Yes, it, I mean, it, can you can you say one or two sentences about it? Is, is that or is yeah, it just? Yeah, so in 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 January 2022, Penguin Press will publish um, what I've been doing for the last four or five years, which is sort of the sequel to More Money Than God. Same kind of deep dive, historical, deeply researched take, but on a different kind of investing. This time it will be about venture capital and technology investing. And it's called The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of a New Future. So I hope everyone will check that out. I I will check it out. I will uh, write about it. And knowing the amount of uh, research that you do and access that you're able to get, in which we talked about, right, I'm very, very excited about it. Very excited to, to talk to you about it again. So yes, this is, this is going to be my first highlight of 2022. So in any event, thank you uh, so much for, for this today. This was a lot of fun. Yes, me fun for me too. And, and thanks for the great questions.